Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. I am your host, quarantined Scott Haskin, here from lockdown to talk to another wonderful guest who has been a guest of the show before. In fact, uh, last time, and as you can see from the title of this episode, uh, we talk a lot about a lot of things. So I have had to once again split Robin's episode into two episodes. And this is the first part. Now, uh, Robin is the author of Victim No More, and we talked to her about that book on her last visit here. And this time we are talking about her newest book, Soul Stirrings, which is a very, very controversial topic. And I'm just going to warn you ahead of time about that because I don't know what you guys believe. I don't know how you feel about anything. I'm not going to question anybody's uh, feelings or judgment or the way that they look at things. I'm just going to say this episode may or may not conflict with your beliefs. Now, if you guys listen to my Halloween episodes, I did talk about some sort of paranormal experiences that have happened to me and things that uh, I can guess what they meant, but don't know for sure. I've caught some EVPs on recordings. I have also uh, seen a full body apparition. I've had uh, other times where I've been touched, where a voice spoke to me directly in my ear. So I certainly have some level of experience with this, although um, not to the degree that you'll read about in this book. Now, aside from that, it is a very, very uh, gut-wrenching story. Robin has been through a lot And she is one of the toughest people that I know. And I am not surprised that she has been able to handle all of this stuff that has happened to her, as you will read about in the book and as you'll hear about as we get into our discussion. But I do just want to tell you ahead of time, some of these topics for some people may be a little bit sensitive. Uh, We do talk about September 11th. We do talk about uh, death and we do talk about the paranormal world. So Uh, If that is something that is off limits for you, then feel free to stop listening and jump on another episode. However, if you're like most people and you're curious, you want to know what's going on, or you just love Robin like I do and you want to hear the interview, then please, by all means, keep listening. Now, if you're listening around the time that I release the episode, uh, I'm recording this intro on Sunday, April the, the the 12th. And uh, it will air on Wednesday, the 15th, the first part. And, uh, you know, we're still in lockdown, still in quarantine. I've been keeping very busy here in the studio trying to deal with some dropout issues and uh, whether I will have to buy a new computer or not. Not sure yet. Unfortunately, all of the testing, all of the power management control that I've been experimenting with has not worked. I've minimized some of the problems, but not enough to continue recording the walkthrough videos or to do the videos I want to do on how I do the podcast, because there are too many audio dropouts when I record those. And uh, it's just, you know, it's not good enough quality to give to you guys as far as I'm concerned. I may even end up scrapping the ones that I have up there and redoing them when we get all this resolved. But uh, we've done just about everything except test the interface itself. So I may have to send it back to the manufacturer and dial back to the old one that can't do everything that I needed to do, which is why I upgraded it in the first place. So we'll see what happens. But in the meantime, I'm still able to do the podcast. I'm still able to write music, which I'm very, very grateful for. Uh, The music is a little bit more challenging with the dropouts, but, um, you know, hopefully that will uh, that will work itself out here pretty soon. 
So uh, I hope everyone is staying safe. If you guys have any questions on how you can stay safe, how you can help other people stay safe, how you can be smart, what to expect from this virus, dial back and listen to episode 102, where I talk to my dear friend, the nurse, Sarah, about those very things. You know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of things we don't know yet, but the things that we do know is that you should stay away from everyone. Not that hard to do. Stay away from going outside. Don't go to the ice cream truck. I mean, that's who even thought that was a good idea. Um, I was at the grocery store the other day. I'm trying to go every like one and a half to two weeks, whereas I used to go every week. Um, I don't need much, but I do need to get some things here and there. And I, I try to get it in and out of the store as quickly as possible. Uh, I know the store that I go to very well, so I know where everything is and I can just get to it quickly. Um, it actually takes me more time to stand in line now because I can't just get right up there and start putting my stuff on the conveyor belt. Uh, my Kroger store has been very smart about putting up distancing blocks where it says, uh, you know, stop here. And then, you know, you go ahead when the next person in, in front of you goes ahead. It's fairly efficient. They've also put up some uh, plastic or uh, what, like plexiglass um, screens between you and the clerk, uh, which would work if they actually extended them to where you stand to make your payment. I like the concept. I think it was very quickly executed, uh, but but it works. And I very, very much appreciate everyone who is out there keeping the world running, the people that are working at the grocery stores, the convenience stores and gas stations, the uh, the people that deliver the mail and packages, the people that are working in the hospitals. I appreciate everybody that's working at home and uh, able to keep things going as best we can through all of this unknown, unprecedented time in our lives. Thank you guys all very much. When I'm in the store, I do the best I can uh, to anyone that I have to interact with to make sure that they understand I appreciate everything that they are doing. I also appreciate the hell out of everyone who's staying home. Hopefully that's you and not going out unnecessarily. And, you know, seriously, so when I was at the grocery store the other day, this is what I started talking about. Um, there's a girl just like walking up and down the aisles. She's got her hand outstretched as far as she can with her cell phone in it. So she's talking into her phone as far away from it as possible, dancing around the aisles, laughing, joking, knock it off. I don't care if you're not sick. I don't want to get sick. Maybe you're a carrier. Maybe you are not showing symptoms, but that doesn't mean that you're not sick. So if you just want to go and jump around, do it in your own damn house. Uh, really annoying just how, how people were. And, and it was really, really kind of surprising that, you know, even, even if you don't want to do it for other people, do it for yourself. And if you don't want to do it for yourself, do it for other people. Um, a lot of people are questioning whether this is all real. There are certain aspects of it. I question myself, but I think maybe people are just taking advantage of this to do things that they had been wanting to do. And now while everyone's in quarantine, they could kind of get away with, different things. So I don't doubt that there are a lot of people taking advantage of this time. But you know what? That doesn't mean that you have to get everyone else sick. So stay at home. And you know, what What really gets me too is I see so many people complaining about, oh, when is this going to end? Uh, you know, I want, I want to go back to work. I want to get money and everything. But yet they're doing exactly the things that they're being told not to do. So if you want it to end, I mean, the first thing is you got to start listening and doing what they say, because even if you don't believe it's real, here's the question. How does this end? What's the end game to this? 
are are the the people that are making the decisions in the medical community and the uh, scientific community are they going to go oh well everybody's been hanging out the whole time uh, a lot of people have been outside unnecessarily going to the park and whatever i'm sure everything's fine the virus is still you know containable enough that we can all go back outside and join the rest of you that didn't listen or are they going to say, you know what, we can't quarantine this thing because too many people are still going outside and, and we're risk, running the risk of spreading this virus. So I don't know how it ends if people aren't going to listen, regardless of whether this is real or not. Now, the thing that I don't get about it is that the numbers, uh, the number of deaths are still from the statistics that I've seen, and I don't know how recent or accurate they are, so I'll, I'll just leave it in that context. But the statistics that I've seen come nowhere close to how many people have died from the flu this year or average every year. So I'm not really sure I understand the depth of the danger of this virus as opposed to our annual flu season. Um, I really don't understand that. But at the same point, just on the premise of it alone, I'm doing what I can to stay inside and stay safe. And I hope that you guys are too. So that being said, let's get back to the world of Robin Cote and the things that are happening with her. My God, this woman has been through so much. And, uh, you know, reading her first book, Victim No More, uh, was was tough because you hate to see anyone go through these kind of things, let alone someone that you love. But th this kind of thing is a whole different kind of uh life, I don't know what the word is. It's not really a burden or a chore, but just a, a life experience that you don't expect. There's not really a lot of training for, there's not a lot of resources as to how to handle it. And Robin being the uh, incredibly tough and strong person that she is, while she's still human, uh, she, man, she has survived a lot of stuff and, and managed so much more than uh, most people I know. So let's find out what happened with Robin. Let's get into her book, Soul Stirrings, and her uh, her experiences. Boy, you got to read this book. It's just, it blew me away. I mean, I got so, uh, she sent it to me to proofread, as that's one of the things that I do is I proofread books. And um, I, uh, I, I find a lot of continuity things. I find things that aren't necessarily explained in a way that, that most people might understand them. So I, I just point them those items out to the author and let them do what they do with them. And uh, I was very honored that she came to me with this book and said uh, she wanted me to be one of the proofreaders. And I really, I, I literally found myself having to reread parts over and over because I was getting so caught up in the story that I wasn't paying attention to my work as a proofreader. So uh, I did, I did, I do feel that I stood up to the task and I proofread the book with accuracy, but uh, it was, it was a little tough because it was just such a fascinating read. And then of course, when it's someone, you know, there's another level of wow factor to it, but uh, definitely a, a very fascinating book. I, if you have an open mind, I highly suggest that you read it. If you don't, it's probably not subject matter that you're going to uh, be accepting of, I guess. And when I talk about open mind, I'm really just talking about to the world of the paranormal. I'm not talking about to, you know, science or different things or whatever, like really just towards the world of the paranormal, because that's really what we're dealing with here in this book. Uh, but it's fascinating. And I loved, loved, loved talking to Robin. We talked for about 45 minutes before we started recording and then another hour afterwards and still got uh, over two hours of, of podcast in. So here is part one of Robin Cote.
All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 103 of the Haskin Cast podcast with my lovely returning guest. Now, here's where the statistics get a little weird. She is back for the second time, but this is her third episode because we talked so much on the first episode that I had to split it into two episodes. God only knows what will happen today. We'll find out. Let's welcome with her new book, Soul Stirrings, Robin Cote. Robin, how are you? Oh my God, Scott, I am just so thrilled that I'm back here with you again. I am doing absolutely amazing. How are you? I'm so glad to hear that. And I'm doing very well. Thank you. Now you're in, in radio. Did that, was that DJ enough of an intro? Did I sound like a radio personality? (laughs) You always do. I love listening to your podcast. They're so entertaining. And the key to it is you have this amazing inflection in your voice. So it's always warm and inviting. And I never hear that that monotone at all like I do with a lot of other radio people. So to me, it's just a beautiful sounding voice. Well, thank you. You know, the thing is, is that I'm excited to talk to the people that I bring on the show. And that is a big part of it. And plus, it's not hard to keep the energy up when you're talking to people that you enjoy talking to. Aw, right back at you. Like you. I love you. I love you. And I'm so excited to talk about your new book, Soul Stirrings. But I have to tell everyone that I'm very honored that you asked me to help you proofread the book because that's one of the things that I do is I do proofread books. And I just, I lost myself so many times in the book that I wasn't paying attention and I had to go back and reread it. I probably read the book four times in the process of trying to read the book once because I just was so drawn into your stories. Wow, I didn't. You didn't tell me that four times. I'm pretty sure it was. Well, I mean, not all of it four times, but there were parts well, I just yeah. so many times I had to go back and reread because I just got lost in what I was reading and, and not not being the uh, the sort of professor of proofreading. And you know, I can't thank you enough because the one thing I didn't realize as an author, this is my second go around. The first one was all blogged out. This one was a whole new challenge for me sitting down as an actual writer and getting it down. But the feedback, beta readers, people who read it before you are actually in the final editing stages, mm-hmm. I I never knew how valuable that was going to be for me. And you, mister, you blew me away. Aww. I got back I got back seven pages of referencing things in the book. And, you know, I'm going to tell you the one that really hit with me. I didn't even think about because when you're just writing the thoughts down, you don't focus so much on what you're saying. You Mm -hmm. just let it go because you're, I'm reliving it. These are true stories. So I'm accessing the memory bank and just putting it down. The one that really got me was when we talked about the firefighter, I called him a probie because that's what he was referred to when I found out the information. And you told me straight up, what is a probie? Mm-hmm. Oh, damn. What am I doing? So I had to explain it. A probationary firefighter or a rookie firefighter. Right. Well, you know, no. I think that we tend to do that anyway. Like if, if I had a friend that used to tell me all the time when I would, you know, he'd be like, hey, what happened to you today? And I would just be telling him about my day. And he's like, hold on, hold on. Who is Susan? Who is this person you're talking about? Because I would just, I know in my head what I'm trying to say. And it, as a writer, you're writing from the perspective of the writer. And then, you know, we have, that's why we edit and have uh, editors or beta readers is because you want to make sure that the points you think you're conveying as you're telling the story, as you know it, 
that you're hitting all those points. It's what made me a terrible trainer. I knew how to do my job and there was so many details I would leave out in explaining to somebody else how to do my job. And so those kind of experiences, I think, really helped me uh, become a better beta reader. And you were so priceless in all that feedback. And I have to tell anybody that's even considering writing a book, don't be afraid to ask a few people to read your manuscript. And that that information is just so vital. And I have to say thanks to one other person mm -hmm. and um, my good friend, Andy, who I've been in radio with for a number of years. That's where we met back in the 90s. And he lives in New York. And I was writing this chapter by chapter, sending it to him in email. And he would get mad at me. It was like going back to the blogging days of the first book. Right. He's like, no, 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 no. I need more. No, no, this isn't long enough. This chapter needs to be more. So he was kind of pushing me to do this. And as we get further in our conversation, you know, we're going to talk about certain subject matters. And he was there with me. So it really helped having that secondary person not only be with me in the flesh when those things were happening to validate it, but when I got to the point of putting it down on paper, he was able to fill in some of the blanks that I had completely forgotten about because the book deals with a very tough emotional subject for me. And it evolves around a lot of beautiful things, but then it revolves around things that were so gut-wrenching and heartfelt to me that I had completely forgotten about some of the key components of what happened. And he was able to fill in those blanks for me. Oh, that's great. I, I didn't realize that. Um, yeah. it's, it is very important because we tend to uh, block out certain things and not not necessarily intentionally or block them out because they were bad, but just because things were more important at the time and, and we tend to forget some of the details. Uh, it's really fortunate to have had somebody that was there that you could consult with. But it, it also goes to the uh, to the to just the idea of letting yourself be as as exposed as possible. So I agree. I think if you're going to put a book out, if you're not having people read it before you release it to the masses, if you're not working with an editor or at least a handful of beta readers that have different perspectives on things, I think you're not going to have as successful a book because it's so easy to get lost in our personal stories. The emotions come back. Uh, we We kind of lose focus whether we realize it or not. And if we don't have somebody saying, hey, you kind of drifted off here and you lost me, um, that's going to happen then to the mass of readers versus the opportunity to sort of wrangle in some of those points. Right. And I will say this, too, that was a key component in all of that. I deliberately avoided giving it to some people that would have been the type of people to say, oh, Robin, this is awesome. It's great. Yeah. Because I, I wanted constructive criticism. And I even had a couple of people who got mad at me because they weren't given a copy of the book to read ahead of time. But I purposely asked you, you're an author, you're a composer. We met working in the film industry. Mm -hmm. I asked a retired police officer who is the host of one of the shows that I produce, who also is an author, a cop, a cop, you know, mm -hmm. think about that. Then I had my third person was another one of my show hosts who had spent some time in prison because of this marijuana issue that had happened. And he's an advocate trying to help people. And he's in the whole CBD health world. So I had 
three different people from three completely different backgrounds, all men. And I wanted to see how it would go through with them. And each one of you really blew me away by the quotes that you gave me. And all three of those quotes are inside the book. And one of them, and one of them is actually on the back of the book because when the police officer gave me back, he gave me back three quarters of the manuscript. He hadn't quite finished it, but he wrote a quote on the front and I'm looking at this. I didn't ask him to do that. And when he gave it to me, I said, do you realize you just wrote the synopsis on the back of the book for me? Oh, wow. Are you okay? With- yeah. And I want to read that to you really quick okay, because yeah. it's very brief, but it's so poignant that it's going to make people look at this and go, oh, wow. It says, I strongly encourage anyone who has lost a loved one to read this often humorous, spiritually uplifting story of a widow's soul-searching pilgrimage into the afterlife, a love story, a ghost story, an investigative story, a story like no other. I think that is an excellent summation of the book. Yeah. I really do. That's magic right there. When I saw that, I literally started to cry. And I told him, I said, can I use this on the back of the book? And he goes, absolutely. Well, how are you going to say no to that? This, this is a guy who spent 30 years in the police department, retired, who also lost a son from a medical condition. So, And he was a single father for many years. He had gone to, through the military. So he's had his own set of traumas in life, plus all the things he saw in the police force. He was shot one time. So, I mean, this is, this is a guy you wouldn't think. You look at a, a person like an officer or someone in authority, you wouldn't think would have that kind of, uh, you know, that quote would come out of them. And for me to actually hear that from him, it just meant the world to me because I deliberately, like I said, I deliberately sent it to three people, mm-hmm. three men. I did not want to give it to a woman. And I, I don't mean to sound sexist, but I I didn't want it to be sappy. I wanted to make sure that I could get three guys to read this and go, that's good. You know, I'm, I'm a diehard person. I yeah. like watching stuff blow up. I'm a, <laughs> I love drag racing my Mustang. I don't like chick flips. Right. So if I can write a book that these three men from different backgrounds that are all strong personalities can get into and read and give me enormous feedback that's just mind-blowing, then I know I did something right. I, I would absolutely agree with that. And to further that point, I would say also, I think people that are more likely to be tougher critics in something where, not that men can't be emotional, but they're more likely to criticize emotion Um, I try not to, I really tried to look at this from more of an academic perspective because I thought that would be of, of more help with my notes, but it's, it's impossible to read this book and not get caught up in what was happening with you putting myself to the extent that I could in your shoes and trying to think, what would I be feeling? What would, what would my reaction be? How would I handle this? Uh, it was a, it's a tough journey, not in the way that your first book victim no more was tough because that was aggressive. This is more, I would say just emotion. Yeah. And what I, what I coined the difference between the two books, the first book was to tell my truth. It Mm. was to get, it was to set the record straight. This book, this is my heart and soul. 
Yeah, I yeah, okay, I could I could see that. I could absolutely see that. Uh, I would say for for readers who, uh, well, of course, I'm going to tell everyone that they should read this book because you should. <laughs> I will say this. I will just say prepare for a bit of an emotional roller coaster, and it would not be a bad idea to keep a box of tissues nearby. <laughs> I get it. I do that all the time when I talk about it too. I start getting emotional about it because it's it is one of those books that I never ever, ever thought I would write. I never thought I could talk about this mm-hmm. because it's, it's a subject matter that is not easy to talk about. No. And and talk about putting yourself out there, the potential scrutiny or uh, uh, opinions that you might get from this. And uh, and we're not just going to keep beating around the bush. We're going to talk about it. But uh, I'll, I'll say that the the backlash of opinions that you might get uh, it could be a wide variety of questionable feelings. Yeah. I think that's the politest I, way I can say it. Yeah. I, I, and I continuously say this in the book, and that's part of the humor journey in this, is I, I still have a hard time believing that I've been through all these things and yeah. that I've seen and heard and felt what I did. And the biggest thing is I make fun of it all the time. There's points where I thought I was going crazy. There's parts where I kept saying in the book that, you know, they're going to lock me in a padded cell and throw away the key or medicate me, call me a whack job, a nut job, because I don't know what I'm talking about. So shall shall we tell everybody what I'm talking about? Well, before we do, I'll just say (laughs) that there are certain things in this world where while they've become widely acceptable, they're also not at all acceptable. Uh, UFOs, for example, it, there's more than 50% of the population are believed to believe that there is life on other planets. A certain percentage of those people believe that they've come to visit us. Uh, but to me, I mean, just in our own galaxy, the idea that there's no other creatures or beings is hard to swallow. Um, but yet, if you say that you believe in UFOs, there are plenty of people that will make fun of you, even though more than half the population believes that it's true. So yeah. even even if you have a strong backing, you're still sort of putting yourself at some sort of risk for uh, putting anything out there that goes beyond the normal or into what would be considered the paranormal. So yes, Robin, what is the big secret of this book? <laughs> the big secret of this book is that I can communicate with people who have passed on. Now, this isn't just any old, you know, hey, I want to talk to my late uh, great, great, great grandfather. It's not that you can summon these people. No, I, I tell everyone, look, this, this is something that just happens. And I've had so much death in my life that it doesn't surprise me that I'm more susceptible to this because I'm more open minded about things. And I can't sit and and. You know, I have people that will put me on the spot all the time about it. And I'm like, well, it doesn't work that way with me. I'm I'm not a psychic where I can sit down and do that. Yeah. I might I might be able to if I if I work on this and hone this ability. But to be honest, that's not what I want to do with this. It's it's something that just happened through a series of events all throughout my life. And to me, to know that our loved ones never truly leave us that there's just this tiny thin veil that separates us from them. That to me is the most wonderful thing in the world because that taught me two things that I'm never truly alone and that I have nothing to fear in death. 
Hmm. I really like that. I really like that because I think that that's one of the biggest things that holds people back in life is they're so afraid of what's going to happen when they die that they really don't live as much as they could. And I think that's the bigger tragedy. You got that right. And and what they don't understand, too, is when their loved ones pass away, they don't want us to sit and grieve for them for the rest of their life. Yes, they want to be remembered. They want to be celebrated. But they don't want you to stop living your life because they don't want to see you give up on what life you have left. You're going to see them when it's your turn to go back home. And I reference this all the time now that I'm in I'm in a bigger understanding of this now far greater than I ever have been because I, I was an investigative reporter. You know that, Scott. Yep. So I, I'm the kind of person that I'm a naysayer until you slap me with a brick wall in the face and prove to me that something is real. Mm-hmm. And there's been so many times in my life where, you know, after my late husband died in 2001, I didn't have a choice but to believe what was happening because it was something that was happening consistently and there was no words that could describe it. And then again, the UFO theory, if you're the only one, no one's going to believe you, but it was happening around me, my son, my family, Mm -hmm. strangers that were around me. So for all of us to see that, then you know that there is something real and tangible that you can look at and make a constructive decision about because you know, uh, there's all kinds of things that happen we can't explain. That right. That's the part of the world. You know, we don't know how this world was created. We say God created this world in seven days, but we don't know how that was done. We weren't there. We didn't see it formulating, mm-hmm. but we know it's there. It's like wind. You can't see wind, but when it blows through a tree, you know the tree is getting blown by the wind, so you know wind exists. That's an excellent analogy. That's probably the best analogy I've ever heard for that. And I think part of it, too, is that beyond just a feeling like people say, oh, I feel my mother around me or, you know, Mm -hmm. I feel my my grandfather is with me uh, when I'm going to take this math test. And, you know, people say all these things, but you have physical objects moving around, things (laughs) happening to you that go beyond just that. I think I'm just talking myself into this because I want to feel better movement. Um, I've been touched before by hands that I can't see. I've seen a full body apparition. I talked about that on the the Halloween episode last year. Uh, but I, but I have not had an experience like you have where I can definitively say, I know who this person is and they're, they're interacting with me as if they're still here. Yeah. Well, that's a process. And I've only gotten to that process after being able to speak to other people of like mind, being able to understand the difference, because I didn't even realize, and I talk about this in the book, I reference it, that I didn't even realize how much my late husband was around me after he passed away. I was just looking at a lot of the bigger things that were happening, but I had written all that stuff down after he died. And I put that book on the shelf for a while and I just couldn't write it. It wasn't the right time because of everything going on. But when I went back to reference that manuscript, I was blown away at how many things he was doing from practical jokes to um, hearing his voice in my head loud and clear. And yeah, I watched the love of my life die right before my very eyes. And this is what was mind blowing. 
he was in a coma from the cancer taking over his body. Mm -hmm. And when I walked back in the room, his whole family was standing around the bed. I put my hand on his leg and his mom said, the love of your life is here. You know, Robin's back in the room. He opened up his eyes, took a deep breath, looked around at all of us in the room and then died. And the moment he died, I'm sitting here going, okay, you know, all these people talk about this, seeing the angels and the white lights and all this stuff. And I'm going, okay, where are they? Where I didn't see that. Mm -hmm. But what I felt was so mind blowing. I felt this surge of energy go up from his leg onto my hand, up all the way on my arm and then cross over in my chest and go through my chest. And the only thing that even I, I reference movie stuff because that's what we all are familiar with. If you've ever seen the movie Poltergeist and Joe Beth Williams is standing at the foot of the stairs and they're talking to Carol Ann and she says, I, she, she could feel her baby go through her. She could smell her. She could feel her. Mm -hmm. That's exactly that. what, it, that's exactly what it was. I felt his soul spirit, whatever you want to call it. I felt it go through my body and that was the most amazing thing I've ever felt in my entire life. I did not even know that we had that type of life force that we could affect somebody in that way where we could just travel as an energy force and go through somebody and you could feel that. I felt I felt so much love and peace at that moment. And you know, everyone was focused on him dying. Mm -hmm. But I saw him with a smile on his face. When he died, he had a smile on his face. And well, he was surrounded by the people that, that meant the, the most to him. And obviously, especially you, and even his mother recognized that. But he he was at peace, obviously, because he saw yeah. everybody was there. He had a moment to just kind of look at you and, and say goodbye and then make his motion. But what's interesting is... and. It, it, I would be curious to have more investigation done into this as well. But they say that when someone dies, they've had people that that uh, volunteer for this where they'll uh, their their bed will be a scale, and you know they've only got so much more time, and so they measure the weight of the body at the time the person passes, and their body actually does get physically lighter. Oh wow! Which really makes no sense at all because and let if they were to say you know, the fluids just dry up or something, that would be one thing you could understand a weight change, but nothing happens immediately when someone dies. So there's really no reason to have a weight variation, but yet there is one and it's only, it's oh a couple of pounds. So what could that possibly be in the scientific oh. world? You just blew my mind. I didn't know that. I, wow. I'm surprised you didn't actually, that, that really kind of no. surprises me. But it's 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 been documented enough times. Now, you guys all know that I'm not a big believer in videos that I see because I know how easily they can be created. I've worked in the movie industry long enough and I've seen some amazing things get done in no time at all. But there have been videos that have been taken in hospitals. And again, I, I say this with a grain of salt, uh, where they do see a minute light coming out from the body and going upward. Again, wow. could be fake. But some of them are surveillance cameras that are, are just in the hospital. Um, there's all kinds of things out there. Uh, go with your intuition. If you see something, if it resonates with you, great. If it doesn't, then be skeptical is fine. But I do believe that when you compare a, a concept like that to the medical reports, surely there's got to be something to that somewhere. I, you know, I would agree with you because the interesting thing is, 
we don't know a lot of this because science and medical doctors, they're only looking at it from the science perspective. But I've met a few doctors that have seen people that have died in front of them. And they're now talking openly about this because it has kind of disrupted their belief system and what they've been taught. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what we know to be this particular subject matter with, with spirits and stuff like that, it is something that's a lot of times you look at religion, how it conditions your mind into believing that that stuff is not real or it's bad, like exorcisms and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of things as a child, a child's mind is more open to these things. Child, you know, children can have imaginary friends, but you don't really know if their friends are imaginary. Right. You may not see them, but that doesn't mean that they don't see them. Well, okay. So I, I wasn't planning on going down that road uh, through the show, <laughs> but I, I want to talk about that for a minute with you because I'd like to get your opinion on this. But before we do, I think one of the big uh, dangers with this kind of uh, documentation is that that there are pl plenty of people that will immediately say that that is proof of God's existence. And I think that's a little bit dangerous because that does not prove the existence of God. That proves the existence of energy of a certain type making a certain motion. Yes. And even that can be questionable as to what it actually is. Uh, but I, I think that people are just too quick to jump into uh, proof of God. And I see people just right off the bat saying that. Oh, yeah. And I've run into people where um, I was after my friend had died and I went to meet with her family members. A couple of her family members actually criticized me and said that, you know, don't listen to her. That's that's not that's the devil. You know, uh, that was hard. I've been called the devil a couple times because of this. And I'm going to tell you straight up. I didn't want this. I didn't right. want this ability. Yeah. I, I love the fact that my loved ones were connecting with me. I've had so many friends and family members that have died. I mean, I think we talked about this before, but I've had, I had 41 people die on me within an 11 year span of time in my twenties mm. to my thirties. Yeah. That's so, ridiculous. You don't want to go to five, six, seven, eight funerals in a row every year from the span of being like 23 to like 34 and then have to pull the plug on the love of your life and let him die. I never wanted any of this, but I love the fact that I know my loved ones are still with me. And if I want to talk to them, I'm going to talk to them. And I, it's not demonic to me. I've never... I don't think that I have ever connected. In fact, I know I haven't. I've never connected with a bad spirit in any way. And I think it's because I don't have fear. I don't yeah. fear it. Yeah, I could see that. And I think that that part of it, too, is the, the fact, like you said, that you are so open to it that uh, you're approachable on the spiritual level. You know, and, and oh. whereas a lot of people, I think, have experiences that they don't necessarily... Um, it, it, they don't think further about it. Like you might think you see someone out of the corner of your eye and then you dismiss it because you know there's no one there. Whereas you might have actually seen somebody out of the corner of your eye or, or their energy or whatever. Um, but I'm curious to, to sidetrack for just a second because we talked about the imaginary uh, friend. And mm -hmm. I do think that uh, I've always had a theory 
that it seems like poltergeist activity. And I have to laugh that you brought up the movie Poltergeist only in the way that this is the second week in a row now I've had a poltergeist reference on the show. Um, <laughs> but because uh, we have the clown doll is here in Vegas at the Hard Rock. Oh, oh Annabelle? No, that's uh, that's brother? from the, uh, oh, the Conjuring. Yeah. No, the, the okay, one yeah. from Poltergeist. Oh, oh, that creepy thing. Yes. Yeah. And, oh, cool. You know, with the great parents that leave that at the foot of his bed that scares him. Um, but I, I also read stories about uh, children who are born with really bizarre, specific knowledge, like the little boy who knows how to do a complete flight checklist for a World War II plane. And uh, people who said, oh, I used to live here and here and I was murdered by this person. And how would you if there isn't something to the idea of energy existing and retaining memory, I, I have a hard time finding any kind of scientific explanation for something like that. Oh, well, <laughs> I have a personal experience with that one. Really? When, oh, yeah. Um Somewhere in my teenage years in this lifetime, I remember having several conversations with people saying that I tried to commit suicide by slicing my wrist, but I have no scars. And somebody kind of, I, I don't know how I got into these conversations, but it was a memory. And I have no, I had no real memory of doing that because I would not have done that in my teenage years here. But I had a past life regression done four years ago. And it turns out that's how I killed myself in a prior life. Interesting. So a lot of times, um, I just actually did a show on this a couple of weeks ago with one of my mentors called Why Are We Really Here? And we don't normally live here. And I know this is going to sound really crazy, guys. So just stick with me for a minute. Think about the movie The Matrix. It's kind of a, a, a little bit of a representation of where I'm going with this. Okay. We don't normally live here on this planet. We live on the other side. Like when you pass away and you go wherever you go to that other side of the veil, that's where we normally live. Mm -hmm. We come here. We are reincarnated and born here to go to school and learn what we need to learn. And then when we die, we take those lessons back to where we normally live. But as a, a spirit or a soul, whatever it is, we are on as an incarnation on the other side. Then we jump into a body here because the body is just the vehicle. So you're able to come here and learn what you have to learn. That's why a lot of these kids are born, they're prodigies, or they, they have these memories from something that makes absolutely no sense because a five-year-old shouldn't know how to play a piano having sat down to it just one time right. and be able to, to do a, a beautiful symphony. Those are memories that are imprinted upon your soul from previous lifetimes. And sometimes they come out. And if you, if you really look at the matrix and I know it's Hollywood and I know it's a movie. No, I don't believe we're incubating in those little things with fluid and we have a plug in our head and all that kind of <laughs> right, stuff. Right, yeah, yeah. But it kind of works in the same way to explain it that we're plugged into this world for the time being to learn things. And then when we're done learning, we go back home and mm -hmm. we take what we've retained. See, and that really, really resonates with me because since I was fairly young and I had religion was pushed on me, uh, you know, we went to a Catholic church when I was very young and then onto a Christian church uh, for years after that. But it always felt 
like it missed the the reality of it. Like this is what we're told, but something's not quite right. And so I I had developed this theory or must have sort of gleaned it from some different things, but that really what the earth is, is it's like college. You know, we come here, we take certain classes, whatever we need to learn to go on to the next thing uh, where we're really from, our our sort of home life on the other side. And then, okay, uh, I need more lessons. So I come back over here and I get those lessons. But all that knowledge that we have on the other side has to be locked away because if it's not, we're going to have too much of an advantage and not really learn the lesson that we need. We'll just be exposed to it as opposed to learning it. You're exactly right. And that's it works in the same way when we're here and we do the same things over and over. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we don't learn that lesson. That's why we repeat history. That's why we repeat mistakes. And it, it works in the same sense. You go through each lifetime like that. And then you take as soon as you get over to the other side where we normally live, everything from every lifetime is right there in your hip pocket. You know it all. But when you come here, it's like you said, you can't know all of that. But sometimes deja vu. I've been here before. Mm -hmm. That happened. That happened to me for some reason in the 90s. I so desperately had to go to England. I don't know why I had to. I'd never been there. I don't know why I wanted to go. So I planned a trip. I went on a pen pal site back in the days when they had chat rooms in the very beginning of the internet. Right. Met someone from England and just talked with him for a year, planned it out, went over there for two weeks, got toured around the country. But here's the funny part. I knew I'd been there before. And I walked up to Big Ben, the clock, Big Ben by the Houses of Parliament, touched it and started crying. What the hell was wrong with me? Right. Why would I walk up to Big Ben, touch it, and start crying? But, you know, again, four years ago, past life regression, found out I had lived in Europe. I had lived in England. I had walked down the cobblestones in the 1800s. So wow. it was really cool to know why I had such this affinity to want to go there. Because I don't know why. It just one day just hit me. Okay, I got to go to England. Why? <laughs> well, okay, but there must have been something about that life that was particularly close to your heart for that memory to have seeped out uh, as opposed to any of the other potential lives that that you had uh, lived. And I know that when people think about, I want to go to a you know, past life regression therapist, oh, that'd be fun. I was probably a pharaoh or something. You probably were not. You know, it's not very likely that you were of royalty or that you were someone famous, maybe at some point, who knows. But if we really do live life after life after life until I don't know what the completion is or what happens after that, but there has to be something very uh, close to you about that particular life that would allow that, that would have allowed that to come through, especially for you to have that emotional connection when you went to Big Ben. Yeah, I don't know. But the funny thing is, is I know I know my name, my first name, and I know I was a man. There, mm-hmm. There's a good one for you. And I, I believe that might have been the only lifetime that I've lived as a man because I knew that and, and my name was Tobias. They called me Toby when I was a little boy. Uh-huh. And I, I saw and I had this happen several times. But during the past life progression, it was all revealed. But when I was a child, I had flashbacks in my teenage years in this lifetime to seeing this little dark haired boy in a barn in England. I could hear the accents, people speaking, and I could see that my father was threatening my mother 
And this was in the 1800s. We were in a barn and I was hiding behind bales of hail. I was like five years old, this little dark haired boy. And I could hear my father screaming at my mother and being mean to her. And then I saw myself as an adult version of Toby. And it was mind blowing because I'm like, am I really seeing what I'm seeing? But when you go through a past life regression, I, I, you know, again, the investigator in me, I'm like, is this real? Mm-hmm. And it was so cool because when I came out of it, I knew why I had this affinity for England. It was because I missed my mom from mm-hmm. that lifetime. I was forced to grow up without my mother figure with me because my dad was not a good man. Right. Very interesting. And I think, too, that uh, it's important to understand that whatever body that we're in is just the body that we're in. And there may be, I I would imagine that there's a specific reason that we're either male or female or gay in a particular life, um, because I think that's all has to do with how we experience whatever that lesson is. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, when I had my my buddy on the show with me, when we talked about why are we really here, he puts it so plainly and simple that in a prior lifetime, you may have been someone that was, you know, say, for instance, involved in the concentration camps where you dismembered people or hurt people. And, you know, back in the ancient days where they dismembered you and fed you to tigers and stuff and lions, mm-hmm. you might be born back into the next life with a missing appendage. Right, because yeah. you, you did bad things to people in a prior life. So now it's your turn to learn why you did bad things. You're going to feel that karmic cycle come back. Mm-hmm. So that's why they always tell you, be careful, be kind to people in your life. If you can't be kind, just walk away because you don't know what you're messing with when it comes to the karma cycle. If you're going to be, none of us are perfect. Sure, But if you're, if you're going to be an a-hole to everybody and you're going to be mean and nasty and go kill people, you're going to pay for that sooner or later, whether you're incarcerated in this lifetime, face the end of a barrel, or you're going to come back in another life and be the victim to something you did to somebody else. It's an agreement you make with whoever's on the other side. You are mean to those people. And, you know, my buddy Steve puts it so well when it comes to children. If you hurt children, there's going to be a special kind of hell for you when you have to face that karma. Well, I, I I would agree with that, but I think there's probably a big caveat to that. And that depends. I would and I'm I'm guessing at this, but I think it would have to depend on what the agreement was that you made prior to coming here. If it yeah. was you need to learn a lesson on how it feels to have extreme gut-wrenching loss in your life, that's why you're coming back. I'll be the one to be there and help you experience that. So I'm going to do horrible things to you so that you can experience that. I don't think that there's necessarily karmic payback for that. Well, that's what I mean by karmic payback is the fact that you have to make that agreement with the other souls that you heard in a previous life. And then you come back here and you work out that karma that way. Oh, I see. Yeah, that could be. That could be. That's the karmic cycle I'm referring to because it is an agreement that you make with the other souls over there and we all help each other with these lessons it's like but if you hurt a soul you are going to have to repeat that cycle and it may not be a pleasant cycle for you see that's where i would differ i would think if it's something that you did of your own free will in this life versus a i'm here to help be your guide through the next life and and help you experience these horrible things i don't think there would be karmic payback for 
something that you agreed to do to help somebody in the first place, as opposed to somebody who's born, like, let's say uh, a, a Jeffrey Dahmer or somebody who maybe that wasn't an agreement he made. He just became evil based on what happened in this incarnation that I think might need some retribution. But if it's something that you agreed to beforehand to help somebody with their lesson, I don't really think you should pay for that. But that's me being analytical. Yeah, I get where you're going with that. I totally agree. I just mean that there's like that cycle because Mm -hmm. especially when you hurt children, if you hurt another soul that badly, there's going to, I mean, I don't know what the exact word is other than the agreement of coming back and, and going through that cycle and learning what, you know, learning why you, you know, when you hurt someone else, this is how it affected them. So now you have to come back and realize how it affected them by being, I don't want to use the word victim, but Mm -hmm. in a sense, that's exactly what it is because you're going to come back and you're going to have to learn to go through that. But karma is just the word that you always hear everyone use. Right. But maybe it's that, or maybe it's also that we all have to experience, like there's a checklist that we all have to go through and it's one life of extreme joy, one life of extreme hardship, one life of, you know, losing a loved one. Like maybe there's certain things that we all have to experience and we all just help each other out. And it's not really like a karmic punishment just as much as, you know what, we all have to go through this. I'm going to help you in this life. You'll help me in the next one. And we'll all get these check boxes. You got it. It's a soul agreement. And you always yeah. make the agreements and then you just come here. And that's why you always have this familiarity with people. And you're like, you know, I, I recognize you. And I don't know why I recognize you, but I do. That's because your soul is recognizing each other. That's it. I think that we're recognizing the energy of the person, not their physical incarnation. Right, right. Because if you and I knew each other in a past life, obviously we don't, we didn't look like the people we are now because we would have been in different bodies. Right. And and the body has always been the vehicle. Exactly. Well, you know, I'm going to recommend a book and I can't remember if I've recommended this on the show before. So for my, my uh, listeners that have been uh, faithful and listen to all hundred and some of these shows, uh, (laughs) the book uh, journey of souls by Dr. Michael Newton is a great study on this. He was a past life regression therapist that uh, accidentally tapped into what happens between lives as opposed to from the time you're born to the time you die. He followed somebody from the time they died back into the other side. And again, take all this with a grain of salt. If this resonates with you, follow up on it. If it doesn't resonate with you, that's fine too. Uh, For me, it really explained a lot. And it actually made me realize that a lot of the things that we just, we we get stressed over, we get angry about, they just don't matter. Nope. You know? Now, I, I, I could talk to you about this kind of stuff all day, but we're straying too far away from why you're here, which is your, <laughs> your wonderful book. Now, I want to ask you, because this, this was a book that you sat down to write, as opposed to uh, sort of collecting the information that you had already put together with your first book, Victim No More. Was it a tough process for you to honestly write this book and relive some of these things and and be real about what happened? Yes, it was. And this is one thing. I mean, you know me, Scott. I always utilize my media presence by, Mm -hmm. you know, putting things out there that I go through because I believe we're here to live, love, learn, and teach. So my focus is always trying to utilize what I've been through to kind of tell someone else, I understand what you're going through. I don't know how you feel. I I can just relate 
because I've been in a certain situation. So as I would sit down and try to write this, I'm not a normally structured writer. And I had a really hard time in the beginning. I started going through the old manuscripts and just kind of rewriting certain things. And then I sat here. There, there were times I had a glass of wine with me. There were times I had a box of Kleenex with me. And I would take a picture of the laptop. I'd sit in here on my bed with, uh, you know, I'm a horror movie guy. I'm, I'm into action and all that kind of stuff. So I had, I, I was actually streaming serial killer documentaries on some parts of writing this book, trying to keep my head together. And I know that yeah. sounds weird, but you try to kind of distract your focus a little bit so that you don't get caught up in the emotion of it all, because this book deals with death. It deals yeah. with real life people. It deals with experiences that a lot of people are afraid to talk about. And this is not a made up book. This is stuff that I've lived through and, even though the first book, talking about the domestic violence and all of that, I thought that book was hard to write. This one was 10 times harder because the memories were just flooding out of me and taking over me. And I was just pouring the words out and capturing that on social media, taking the picture with that box of Kleenex and the, and the computer, telling people what I was trying to do. It was something that shows people that this is a process. Understand how this works, that it's okay for you to sit down and put your words down on paper. It's okay for you to cry. It's okay for you to have a glass of wine and take a break and take a breath. So yeah, it was it was a little difficult at times with certain subject matters, reliving the day-to-day things with my late husband when he was when he got the cancer and he died. The hardest part about that is realizing that the love of my life was only in my life for 17 months. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that really hit me hard too. When, when I got to that point, because it just seemed so unfair after, you know, reading your first book and seeing all the, the things that you had been through and you finally find somebody that you connect with, that you can trust. That's going to be the kind of person that you should have been with the whole time. And then that person gets taken away from you. That was hard as a reader, let alone you. Yeah. And here we are 19 years later, and he's still in my heart. Yeah. Even more so than he ever has been. And that's the greatest gift to me, because a lot of people go through their entire lives not really knowing what love truly is. We have different levels of it, but to really feel that level of love, that undying love in your soul it just captures you that is heartbreaking when you see that person going through something like cancer that you can't do anything for them yeah. and to be and to be the one to pull the plug and be the strong person to say honey you got to let go you you don't have to worry about me and you know him and my teenage son were bonded they were best buddies mm-hmm. so you know it was really hard to bend down and ICU and tell him, look, you know, I said, I got to go home and take a shower, but don't you dare leave me until I get back. Yeah. I didn't want him to die without me present. And then when I, you know, I came back and within a certain amount of time, I had to tell him, I'm going to be okay. Jeff is going to be okay, but you need to let go because we're not going to beat it. It's, it's done. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, it, well, and that certainly uh, brings up another 
whole concept that we could probably go off on for a while. But the idea that uh, we do have the ability to control our bodies to that extent, not necessarily yeah. that that you know maybe he could have healed himself if he had caught it early enough. I, I'm not going to speculate on that because I really don't know. But I've heard so many stories about people that are either in a coma or terminal and they're they're trying to hang in there, trying to fight it because they don't want to see the people that they love hurting and they know how much it's going to sting if they die. And they hang in there until that person sort of releases them and says, you need to let go. And then within minutes or an hour, they're gone. Yeah. And when you understand the freedom of being able to give your loved one that kind of peace and watching them let go so that they, because the, the one thing we don't realize, you know, I hear this from a lot of people, are, are they still in pain? No. The second they leave the physical body, they're done with that. Yeah. There's no cancer over there. The only thing they take, the only thing you take with you is your love. The love is the one thing that transcends. The fact that, I was brave enough as a human being and unselfish to say it's okay to go. That was something so amazing to me that I could do that. I didn't know I was that strong, mm -hmm. but I saw what this was doing to him. Mm -hmm. I saw that there was nothing that could have saved him. We tried everything and he almost died several times. Yes. That's, that's why we got married in the hospital because we didn't make our wedding date because he almost died. So we got married in the hospital so that, you know, and I remember somebody saying, why would she marry a dying man? It's like, Oh, you don't get this. He yeah. asked me to marry him before the cancer came back. And number two, what kind of person would that make me? If I said, I'm not going to marry you, go ahead and die. I yeah. married him. I married him because I loved him, first of all, but I married him in the hospital to give him a reason to live. Yeah. No, and, and it's certainly completely understandable. I think that people kind of look at certain things, especially during emotional times, they try and rationalize things that you just really can't rationalize necessarily unless you're in the shoes of the person that has to make the decision. And yeah. in, in a case like that, first of all, when somebody that you love asks you to marry them, uh, regardless of the circumstances, why wouldn't you say yes? I mean, just right off the bat, that just seems silly that that's even a question. Uh, but everybody has their own perspective based on their own experiences. Maybe if you hadn't have gone through the things that you had gone through before you met him, maybe your attitude towards the whole thing would have been different. Maybe you would have said, you know what, I, I'm not really prepared to take this journey with you uh, because of your health, I love you, but I'm not strong enough to go through that. Having survived everything you did, maybe that's what gave you some of those tools that made you the stronger person that you didn't know you were. Yeah, and I referenced this as well in the book. My buddy David, David McIntosh, he's the one that pointed it out to me. He said, you know, I, I asked him one time, I said, I don't understand why I've had so many people die in my life. It doesn't make sense. I'm so young. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is before I even met my late husband. And, and David told me, he goes, look, Robin, everything is predetermined. Their death is predetermined. You're in their life to learn from their death. You are being prepared for something in your life that's going to come along. We don't know what that is yet, mm -hmm. but you're being prepared by having to face so much death. And I realized that day that I stood in that hospital 
and I had to shut that machine off. I knew that day that I was the one, the only one that had the strength to do it because of having so much death at a young age. It prepared me for that very moment. Mm-hmm. And it's it is interesting that it's it's understandable that it's a hard decision, but at the same point, when you, when you know there's nothing that can be done, and you uh, you're you're not gonna the person's not gonna benefit. They're miserable. They're just they're sick all the time. It's not a way to live. It should be an easier thing to be able to stop that pain. But it's really more us not wanting to let go of them yes. that prevents us from doing it. Yeah, and I am grateful for his, one of his cancer nurse, nurses, her name was Ellen. She was probably, I'd say, late 60s, gorgeous woman, red hair. She was a former biker chick, and she was an, a, a, you know, a chemo nurse, an, an oncology nurse. And she always was a straight shooter with me. And I remember being in ICU with him, and I, she came down to visit from the sixth floor, which was the cancer ward. She came down to see me, and we had a, a good talk. Because I, I looked at her and I said, you know, I really love the fact that you're always a straight shooter. You don't bullshit me about anything. Mm-hmm. I said, tell me exactly what we're looking at. And she didn't spare anything from me. And I love her to death to this day because she was so brutally honest with me and prepared me for what I was looking at. And he did not have a DNR. So, you know, we knew that he could he didn't want to be a vegetable. That was something he told me. He didn't want to be a vegetable, Mm -hmm. but he did not have a DNR. And her and I talked about it and she said, this is what happens if they have to resuscitate him. And I'm going to tell you point blank with as much cancer that's in his body right now, we've seen it. You can see it, all the nastiness coming through the tube out of his nose. you can see all that black from his chest. Mm -hmm. She goes, if we crack open his chest, he's dead immediately because the cancer gets airborne. It's, it's going to spread everywhere the second we open him up. Right. And and for those of you, it, a DNR is a, an order to uh, do not resuscitate. Right. So if he goes into like a shock or something like that, they're not supposed to try and bring him back to life. Right. Uh, so very, we, very important uh, document to have in a time like that, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So that the family doesn't, so that there's no thing, you know, because no one in his family, I mean, this guy was what, 35 years old? Yeah. No one in his family knew that he didn't want the machine on or off. We were just watching a movie when we were first living together, you know, before the cancer had come back. We were watching a movie on television and some guy got put on the, the machine. He was in a coma and the family was arguing. And he, the words that came out of his mouth is, I don't want to be no effing vegetable. Mm-hmm. You know, he goes, I don't want to be no damn machine. So when I heard that, that stuck with me. And I was the one that had to make that decision because nobody in the family knew. Right. Well, and, and it's something that people, they just don't want to talk about. They avoid the conversations. No. They avoid the preparations because they don't want to uh, intellectualize the idea that someday they might lose that person, whether it be a child, a parent, a partner. Um, but those, those conversations are so important because anything can happen at any time. Yeah, and I will tell this to people just because of what I learned through all of this. The second time that he almost died, um, and I believe it was either the second or the third time he almost died, I went into the hospital because I stayed with him in the hospital all night to try Mm -hmm. to help the nurses, and I had a talk with him. 
I said, you know, I need to talk to you. We need to just, just call it out as it is. I said, you don't have a will and I know you're 35, but we need to just really figure out if this happens again, we need to map out everything that you want to do with your stuff for your family who you want to get what. So I sat down with him in the hospital and just write out all these notes that he said to me. I went home, I typed it up. Then I got a notary to come into the hospital and have him and the notary sign it. Mm -hmm. And his father was angry. I mean, he was not on good terms with his father. His parents had been divorced for years, but his his father was angry because I did that. And I'm like, you don't understand. Nobody knows what could happen? And this man has to have his last wishes followed. That is my job as his wife and the love of his life. I'm going to make sure that nobody says any different than what he wants done. Because all the death in my life has taught me that at any given moment, your life could be over just like that. Yeah. We don't, we don't control that. That can happen at any given moment. So, Make sure that people know what your wishes are. Make sure you set things up. You're never too young to have a will. I started having a will right after I did that with my husband. Mm -hmm. And I was, what, 33, 34, something like that. I went and made myself a will because I didn't didn't want anything to happen and have questions left. Well, and not only that, but you don't want your your family or friends to have to deal with a bunch of stuff while they're in the middle of grieving your loss. And, you know, just before I turned um, 15, I almost died in a car accident. I was being loaded into the ambulance and everything was kind of going gray and fuzzy and had a weird sensation come over me. And I heard the the, uh, paramedic go, we're losing him. You know, it could be over any time. So first of all, enjoy your life. Like, don't be a dick to people. Just we can all get along. We can all work together. We can all be friendly and make a beautiful life for each other. And that will help with the loss because people will have lived a happier life. Right. You know, it just it just makes sense. But instead, like I said, we get caught up in all this petty bullshit and everything and and anger and whatever. Uh, But I think that it is important to have those conversations. It is important to make sure that that things are taken care of just because anything can happen. We see it every single day. Yeah, it's very unexpected. And, you know, a lot of this kind of stuff was unexpected when it happened to me, too. And I connected with a lot of people that had died that I, I had no connection to. You know, and and to learn their stories, how their life, you know, was taken, more or less. I, I it was just mind blowing to me how how we get so caught up in the minutia of day to day life that we don't even know that at any instant our life could be over. And right. it it's really given me a level of appreciation for life that I've never had before, because through all of that death. You know, I, I've had cancer, suicide, car accidents, uh, you know, a plethora of things mm-hmm. that have taken people out of my life. And I'm I'm in the, the thing where I'm just going to live each day to like it's my last because, you know, I know I'm going to be around for a while. I have a lot of work to do. But just that idea that at any given moment, something can change in my life that will change the whole trajectory from, for the rest of my life. It really makes you think and gives you a different perspective. Right. 
Now, the interesting thing, and, and this is really where we get into what is going on in the book, is that after he passed away, uh, it, over the course of time, little things started to happen around you, and you kind of dismiss it for a while because what else do you do? Oh, it must be my grief. Uh, my mind is playing tricks on me. I just miss him and I'm seeing these things. But at some point you had to register that he was still communicating with you. What was the thing that made you go, okay, I, I give up. This must be happening. Oh, it's just a series of events. Cause you know, um, anything from the, the one time where I'm watching the hockey game, cause I was a hockey writer when we met at a hockey game and I was watching a game not long after he died. And this big bang happened on my television set. No one else was around and I saw something fly off and then I went looking around and I found my earrings on the floor and immediately I picked them up and I'm like, you know, how the hell did that happen? And then I hear this word come out, loud and clear like this person's in the room yelling at me losers and i heard his voice loud and clear and it's like okay i know he's still with me and you know i heard his voice several times right after he died mm -hmm. and i in, in the hospital i heard his voice right after he died and his family dismissed it thinking i was crazy but when when that happened that kind of set the tone for everything going forward and then when he started pulling the pranks on me, a lot of times he would do things three times in a row until I finally figured out it was him doing it. Mm -hmm. Because you don't you don't think of things like the clock changing or somebody messing with your watch. You don't think of that as something that is spirit. But when it continuously happens, and his number and my number apparently is three. Always has been, apparently, because this is what he does in threes. Mm -hmm. So that's when it got to the point where it began to get frustrating because I'm like, I, I can't excuse it anymore. Because I know for a fact if you set something down in a certain place and it moves, not more, you know, more than one time, two times, three times, or something happens more than twice or three times, you have to start thinking there's a pattern here. Right. And and I believe that's when I started getting the gist of it. And it became frustrating because, I mean, I, I love him to death still to this day. He could be a real pain in the ass with these things until I finally said, knock it off. I know it's you doing it. And as soon as I acknowledged it, it stopped. And then down the road, he did something different. And again, it's his little way of popping in. You know, and I use the, the reference for ghosts with Patrick Swayze when he's on the subway and Vincent Chevalier teaches him how to move objects with that controlled anger, you know, control all of that, move an object. I think Cliff figured out how to do that pretty quickly. And I think he was having a lot of fun messing with me and my family. So it, it took on a tone of frustration at times. But mm -hmm. then, you know, when I look back on it, it really makes me laugh my head off because I I was getting frustrated over it. And then it's like, it's the greatest gift in the world to know that, yeah, I, I know you're playing these tricks on me. You can stop now because it's starting to make me angry. Stop, you know? <laughs> Isn't it amazing that even, you know, you, you think that you would just grieve forever and you do, but at the same point, that person that you're grieving over not being around can still annoy you by still being around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? And, and the, 
you'll find this funny, Scott, because now when I talk to my friends, I have a couple of friends that are pretty ill and I joke with them and I say, you know what? You do have my permission to come haunt me when you, when you go to the other side, but do me a favor, stay the hell out of my shower. Yeah, right. Well, I try to, to think of the perspective from the other side. Like what is his perspective? Like I, I get that the energy is conscious. Because if yeah. it wasn't conscious, the the people that have reported things in hauntings, there I think there are some that are are completely unconscious, like just the residual energy that are repeating patterns over time. I I think there is some of that, but I think there is also a consciousness in in a case like this or in things that have happened to me where the, I'm I'm the only one in a building and I'll hear somebody whisper my name right next to me. You know that is conscious. It has to be. Yeah. Uh, playing yeah. pranks on you, knowing uh, how you're going to react to the game, those sort of things. That's conscious. So it makes me wonder how much of our body as we're alive, how much of our consciousness is the brain versus the soul? And those are the things that I start to think about. And another reason I got sidetracked while I was reading your book, because my mind would go off into these little tangents. Yes. And you just brought up a very good point. The separation between the two types of things the the actual physicality of somebody using that energy to penetrate that veil to communicate with you like being right there present with you and then the essence of a spirit still there but not the actual physicality of the spirit being there right well then can can we split our energy can we leave a little bit of it here to check on you until you know we know that you're okay and then we join the rest of us back home or do we have to, does all of us stay here? And I mean, there's so many questions that all of this raises. And you've had so many experiences with people that uh, they're, you've, you've connected with their energy after they've passed. Yeah. But do you feel like you're connecting with all of them? <sighs> like the whole, well, not, not all of them is in a lot of people, but I mean like the whole spirit. Yes. And, and I, I believe I, I have to some degree you know, the, the topic with the towers that I'm still kind of wondering about that to some level. But when, you know, when my friend committed suicide three years ago, I actually felt her jump into my body. Has it been I, three years already? Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. 2017, May of 2017. Wow. And um, there were instances because I, I describe it in the book where she was inside my body. She made me feel things mm -hmm. because I didn't, I never felt those things before. I never felt cold and dead. I never felt afraid for my life to that point where I thought somebody was right there ready to, to kill me and carjack me. I've never felt that kind of fear like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, finding out after the fact that she did that to show me what she lived with on a daily basis. So in that sense, she was able to jump into me somehow and make me feel what she felt. So I could feel that. But then in New York, I saw, but I couldn't, I couldn't necessarily, it, it's a hard thing for me to say because I felt like they were right there in front of me, mm -hmm. showing me and telling me things. But to me, I don't think, I don't think that their spirit is restless there. 
You know, normally when I I have to break a podcast into a couple parts, I try to uh, find a good place to do it. Hopefully this was a good place because the conversation really just flowed, you know, the whole time. And I I learned so much. It's such an intense situation for somebody going through these things. And uh, I hope that you enjoyed part one and we'll return for part two when it airs. Uh, In the meantime, next week, I'll be back with another guest on the Haskin Cast podcast and we will be returning to Robin soon. Please write me at Scott at scotthaskin.com. Let me know if you have any questions. Thank you for joining. Like, heart, uh, whatever on your local podcast host. And we will see you next week for another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. Podcast.